0: This is Anthony Annarino, and you're listening to In the Arena. This episode of In the Arena is sponsored by Sales Accelerator, the very best and most complete training for B2B sales professionals and B2B sales organizations. So listen, if you want to improve your sales results or the results of your team, I want to share a program with you that I created called Sales Accelerator. It's a training platform for salespeople, for sales managers, and for sales leaders. The training platform includes 450 individual lessons and 33 individual courses with a new course being added every week. And all of the fundamentals are covered there and including advanced concepts like level four value creation and building consensus and leading with insight, as well as prospecting and targeting and diagnosing and negotiating and closing, all very, very interactive and all actionable and practical and tactical because that's what I like to do. But I want to share with you just one of my favorite programs. It's a special program. We call it Coach. There are 100 videos in this program with more added every couple weeks And in this course, I give you the language for every common prompt, objection, concern and pushback that clients are going to throw at you while you're selling. So if you ever wanted to know what to say and how to say it, this program is going to give you everything you need to be able to have these kind of client conversations and to execute all the things that you'll find in a book like The Lost Art of Closing. How do you ask them for consensus? How do you ask them to invest more? All of those things are covered. So if you want B2B sales training that allows you to up your game, to become a peer and a trusted advisor, to learn the state of the art of consultative selling now, this is that program. So go visit me at b2bsalestraining.com. And if you want to make more sales even faster, let me help you accelerate the results of your team. Call me at 833 Areno. That's 833-426-6274. 833-426-6274. And let's accelerate your sales. I'm going to walk you down a little bit of a timeline here to describe my next guest. He started in 1986 by consulting with sales teams and writing sales strategies based on his personal experience. In 1992, he started publishing a column in the Charlotte Business Journal. In 1994, he wrote a book called The Sales Bible and immediately hit every bestseller list. In 1996, he began being published in 50 newspapers nationwide. In 98, he wrote a book called Customer Satisfaction is Worthless, Customer Loyalty is Priceless. In 2003, he started a newsletter called Sales Caffeine that went out weekly to many, many subscribers, and now with a dead giveaway, in 2004, he releases a book called The Little Red Book of Selling, 12.5 Principles of Sales Greatness, which made every major best-selling list, including number one overall on Amazon.com when that was a harder thing to do, and it began a record run of 103 consecutive weeks on the bestseller list. Without any further ado, it is my privilege and honor to bring into the arena, my friend Jeffrey Gittimer. Jeffrey Gittimer. Good Whoa. morning.
1: Anthony
0: Do you remember the very first time you ever communicated with me? And I'll remind you that it was an email that you sent me in 2010. Uh, and- I got something
1: that you wrote. It pissed me off. <laughs> and because it wasn't my philosophy, and of course anything that's not my philosophy has to be dressed. <laughs> And I sent you an email. I I actually perused you on your website and everything because I wanted to find out who the hell you were. And I'm sure I insulted you. (laughs) You did. And you asked me if I'd ever read The Little Red Book of Selling, which we're going to talk
0: about for a minute. Uh And of course I had. I mean, who hasn't? And uh, we'll talk about that book. But what was funny about it is I woke up on a Sunday morning to this email from Jeffrey Gittimer, who, you know, everyone in sales knows Jeffrey Gittimer. And I'm like, what? And then I read it and I'm like, what? (laughs) It was funny. And then I sent you back a note and you got to the real heart of your unhappiness with me. And I think the third exchange back and forth, which is when you reminded me that, you know, I own salesblog.com, right? Right. And I did not know that because when I went to buy it, I tried to buy salesblog. But some moron bought it and sat on it for years, and it was just registered to that person in Charlotte, North Carolina, and I didn't know you lived there at the time. Gotcha. And then eventually, you forgave me. Have you forgiven me?
1: No. (laughs) We don't forgive people. Actually, you know know where the old axiom says forgive and forget? We don't forgive or forget. (laughs) We try to be the ultimate. In Philadelphia, as you can see, I wanted to wear my Philadelphia shirt this morning because... It depicts the fact that the city of brotherly love is neither. (laughs) Perfect.
0: I want to go through a couple questions before we get to truthful living, Uh, the first writings of Napoleon Hill, which you annotated beautifully. And I want to talk about the book. But I want to go backwards a little bit.
1: When did you first start writing and where were you first published? I started writing sort of offhandedly. I did a lot of business consulting and wrote a lot of people's business plans. In college, I actually got. An A or a B, I can't remember. You can, someone go look at my transcript from Temple uh, if they had transcripts in those days. But I was a natural at it, and I wrote by hand because I didn't want to type. It was in the 60s, and I I just didn't feel like it. And I would scratch words out, and the teacher would give me an A minus, and he said, you could have had an A if you would have just rewritten it. I never did. I just never wanted to. (laughs) What did you write on? I can edit, but I would just, you know, like cross shit out and put a little, arrow and did you just write like
0: on a legal pad yeah yeah much
1: or white paper
0: that's interesting And everybody
1: else had a notebook with a plastic front on it and and they got a d that's interesting can't write did you first get published by a publication was it like a business journal that started publishing you and i I, i tried to publish my article in the charlotte observer they told me no And the lady ended the conversation with, it'll never happen. (laughs) And I ended the conversation with, no, it'll never happen here. I literally left the place and went over to the business journal where I was delivering them all of the new corporations and building permits. I published a list of sales leads in the 90s. And the publisher was walking across the street as I was walking across the street. We met in the middle of the street and my picture had appeared in the Observer that morning for a guy had wrote about sales answers and they were freaking bogus. And that's why I went there. I said, this guy can't write and you're stupid enough to print it. And so he said, Hey, let's have a cup of coffee. And I said, okay, fine. And he said, you know, 30% of our readers are in sales and we don't do anything for them. I said, well, why don't I write a column every week on selling skills? And Anthony, as we were talking, the people who turned me down walked by. Said, <laughs> Is that cool? That's like, a you great don't story. A, you don't think there's a God. Every once in a while, he or she shows up. With a sense of humor. Yeah. Oh, exactly. I started writing March the 23rd, 1992 in the Charlotte Business Journal. And I wrote every Friday for 15 years on the science of selling or personal development. When did you publish the sales Bible? September of 1994. After I published the first column in the Business Journal, I said, oh, if I just write a hundred of these, I got a book. And you did? Yeah. And what was and the I did, second book? It to do with Adrian Zakheim. You want to know that story? (laughs) We should probably save all those stories for another podcast. No, actually, um, I went to, I cold called 14 publishers in New York City, 13. And one I had an appointment with, it was Adrian. I found his number, at the PR department, they hide that guy. And when I called up, he said, "Uh, this is Adrian Zackham. I said, hi, this is Jeffrey Giddemirama. He goes, how'd you get this number? (laughs) <laughs> I said, I called the PR department and the lady was nice enough to give it to me. And, uh, he go, all right, all right, all right. And he set an appointment with me, he goes, no guarantees. Send me your stuff. I'm not going to read it. Okay, fine. <laughs> and then he made me an offer. Um, but the, it was totally crazy. I met with him three times in, in, in two days. And he said, well, call me Friday. I said, Okay. And meanwhile, my daughters were up. I think they were maybe six. I can't remember how old they were, but the twins were there. 94. They're now 46. You can do that math. They were 20-something. And uh, I said, listen, this guy's going to meet with us. And if he says, I need to talk to your dad, we don't have a deal. If he says, oh, hey, girls, come on back, we have a deal. Just that simple. And Adrian comes out and he goes, Oh, you brought your daughters. Come on back, girls. And they're like, Yes. <laughs> yeah. I just told him I didn't want any money. I just wanted books. I wanted 10,000 books, no advance. Blew and his doors off. He had no idea. Did the book come wrapped in cellophane with a CD or yeah, something? It did. Yeah. What was that? It was a game, a sales game, similar to the ones that I'm doing right now. It was the first ever cd that you know had sales answers in it i never owned it but i've seen it that it's uh, it's a whole package it's a you can whole go thing go on ebay and get one i have a few of them the most interesting part of the thing he goes okay uh what kind of a royalty do you want I said, what do you mean he said well this is where we negotiate i said what are you talking about he said well you tell me how much you want and then we back and forth and i said okay i want uh 50 he goes 50 percent. the most we ever pay is 15 i said all right i'll take that <laughs> and that was the negotiation <laughs> that was a classic piece
0: that's uh, quite a lot of leverage you use there
1: <laughs> Yeah. <exactly.
0: laughs> okay this is a true story i don't know what year it was it's been some time ago i happened to be in a barnes and noble and i watched two guys get those little plastic baskets to put mm-hmm. books in Mm-hmm. And they walked to the shelf, and they took every single copy of the Little Red Book of Selling, of which there were many in this particular Barnes & Noble. Oh. I might have been in Phoenix when this happened. And then they took all of the yellow books and all of the green books. They took all of them. Wow. And I was like, look, at that's unbelievable that they filled up both of those carts. They must have been arming their sales force with, with the books. So, But I'm watching them like, how do you sell the whole stack of books like that? And I'm looking at this going, it's incredible that they would fill up the basket with the same book that they're bringing to these people, but then buy all the rest of the books that they had on the shelf Mm -hmm. by Gittimer.
1: So they gave me my own shelf at Barnes & Noble. (coughs) I was selling like 100,000 books a year in Barnes & Noble stores. But let me just throw this at you. The reason that they bought them is because they felt that the little red book of selling was readable and actionable. When you look at it, it's like, oh, I can read this. And, oh, there's cartoons. And, oh, there, there was all kinds of phenomenon about that. And Barnes & Noble was very nice to me, I have to say. they, The book buyer liked me. Uh, they put my books all over the place. And when they launched, I made every list on the planet. I had six or seven number ones on Amazon.com. I mean, overall number one, not like number one and most likely to be read and liked by people that are over 40. Amazon breaks it down so anyone can be number one now. I mean, I beat Harry Potter. I beat... John Kerry's book. I beat a lot of books.
0: I want you to say out loud how many copies of the Little Red Book of Selling that you sold. Just says people, so they get a, an understanding of what that book was and the phenomena that it was.
1: We don't actually know foreign sales because foreign publishers don't always tell you the truth about how many copies they sold. But we can. We are guesstimating it. We know it sold over a million copies in in America, and we believe it to be over five million globally.
0: That's amazing. A
1: million copies of a book
0: is amazing by itself. Yeah. A million a copies of a sales book is uh, an order of magnitude different.
1: The record that I don't believe will ever be broken is I was on the Wall Street Journal bestseller list 103 straight weeks. For that book? Yeah. The Little yeah. Red Book is selling. At one time, I had four books on the, on the Wall Street Journal best selling list, including the Little Red Book. Amazing. So books kept coming out. I, they <laughs> kept buying the Red Book with it. It was phenomenal.
0: Beautiful. I don't know that people know what an innovator you are in this space. So I want to ask you one more question before we get into Napoleon Hill's work. Sure. When did you start producing content, like video content and training content for the internet? What year?
1: 1998. There was no internet in 1998. (laughs) I I built my studio in 1998. Literally, I was going to stream on the internet because I knew that that was the future of training. I hired a kid. I spent six figures and the first figure was not one (laughs) on building a studio. And I had all kinds of uh, devices that would go obsolete within 90 days, (laughs) but you didn't know it at the time. You were streaming at like 14,400 baht or something. I thought I was buying state-of-the-art equipment that weighed 500 pounds, but (laughs) I started to record. You could record with, uh, by the way, the camera, I think, cost $36,000 Oh, my gosh. At the B&H for. But the bottom line was I wanted to be first. I wanted a studio. I wanted to have a it was a blue screen at the time, not a green screen. And I I hired a kid out of the University of South Carolina and I gave him the keys and I said, hey, go wild. And this was kid was an innovator. He was phenomenal at what he did. His work is still here. We still publish it. I mean, he was brilliant at what he did. And we're still friends.
0: Let's start with who Napoleon Hill was. And I I think that we we have to put this in context. I think that there's a a certain sort of gap between generations where Hill's work, people may not be as aware of it as you are and as I am. So
1: who was Napoleon Hill? He was a regular guy born before the turn of the century who decided that he was going to succeed no matter if his ass fell off. And he went out and went about studying things, became clerk, you know, became all kinds of, and worked for people that were smart, and finally realized that if he put it down in writing, that people might read it. He wrote an awful lot of stuff way before Think and Grow Rich was written. The the, uh, Thoughtful Living book that you have in your hand there, this book was written by Napoleon Hill literally in 1917, which is a full 20 years before Think and Grow Rich came out. So this work is 100 years old. But he was a person who decided that he was going to teach others and help them get better. And in that teaching, he became wildly successful. And then publishing a series of books, starting with The Law of Success, which actually came out, people think it came out in 1928, but it came out in 1925 at like the Cleveland School of something or other. And from there, he just continued to write and compile and innovate. And when he finished Thinking Grow Rich in 37... In 39, he put out How to Sell Your Way Through Life, still the best book ever written on selling, including mine. Was he a professor? Was he, he was a teacher of He was a professor at the George Washington University. He was a professor at the university. Wherever he went, he took on a professorship.
0: Yeah, and that's it's interesting to me. I want to I talk about that for a minute in a, another context. But tell me about the impact Hill's work had on you personally.
1: I studied sales with a bunch of guys in 1972. I, I had the gift of gab. I had my own business, but I didn't have, I didn't know the science of selling. And I decided that if I knew that, I could be a hell of a lot better. And we started to read Napoleon Hill book and I just, I couldn't get it. I just couldn't get it. It was written too hokey and I'm from New Jersey and we already know everything. And so everything I was reading there would just be a review. But finally, after about the fifth or sixth, and we were, we were required in this group of guys to read one chapter a day and report on it. So I ended up reporting on the book literally once a week. There was only five guys in the class. So I read the book about 10 times in one year. By the third reading, I got it. I mean, I realized, oh, this is about life. This is not just about attitude. This is a book about how I can get where I want to get. This is about my desire. This is about my focus. This is about my faith. This is about my determination. This is about all the elements that I need to become more successful than I am. And I have to tell you, and I think it's only fair to say, I started with a gift. My parents were very smart. When they gave birth to me, I was by birth smart. What I did with my smart, that's a whole other issue. The core was in my head already. I just had to convert it into something that was valuable.
0: And of course, you were also extraordinarily good looking, and that helped. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah,
1: that that had a lot to do with it. (laughs) But I had... Actually, the real secret is not that I was just smart. I was in the Northeast. I grew up in Philly and I sold in New York City. I cold called in New York City for three years and made millions of dollars worth of sales as a result of it. So I understood the science of selling at a point when you could actually make a cold call. Like I I cold called Bill Gaines, the publisher of Mad Magazine, the, the guy that invented the comic book. And publisher of Mad Magazine. I let's be clear on, on
0: what cold calling means to you here, because you're talking about walking in a door in New York City, not picking right. up the phone, right? Yeah. Right. So let's be walking, clear about this. It's walking actually, in the called, door and asking.
1: I called Charles Revson. I walked in on Bill Gaines. I stayed in a hotel room, and I would make ten targeted calls and try to get a couple of three appointments. I had all kinds of strategies. It's a whole other issue. We'll talk about sales in New York City <laughs> at another time. But that's where I learned how to sell.
0: I thought I had everything that Hild published and everyone knows Think and Grow Rich and the Laws of yeah. Success and Success yeah. Through a Positive Mental Attitude. I have not heard of Truthful Living. And right. until I got this in the mail from you, I'm holding it up now where uh, I have one of the 1000 autographed copies of oh, this, yeah. which, I which should is have numbered them. I should
1: have numbered. It,
0: it is a beautiful book. It's like what you do. So it's also a piece of art. As well as being a book. And I also have this letter that you had somebody sign your name on. Yeah, I did imagine. Uh, yeah. It's great. Where did this work come from? How did you end up with this content, number one? And then how did you get the opportunity to annotate this and start to put you just make it actionable in every step, which I like. It, it's not only saying like, look at this, because this is, I think, one thing that's true about Hill's work, in my opinion. When you read Think and Grow Rich, you're like, I don't get it. Right. And then you read it again and you're like, I still don't get it. And I don't know if it's the eighth time or the 10th time. You're like,
1: oh. Yeah, finally.
0: I'm (laughs) fine now. Finally, I get it. I don't know why his work does that to people, but it does. It has that effect on them. It's difficult to comprehend. And then you've made it actionable by literally writing out, okay, this is what you do now that you read this particular piece of content.
1: I have the same thing for Think and Grow Rich. It it will probably be a book in the near future. I have already written the forward and the backward of, of every chapter, because I know it so well. But let me share this. Through Charlie Tremendous Jones, my speaking mentor and lost comrade, I was introduced to Don Green, the guy that is the head of the Napoleon Hill Foundation, and Don and I became friends, and I began to publish their weekly newsletter, Napoleon Hill, yesterday and today. I did it for free because Napoleon Hill gave me positive attitude, and I thought, wow, what a way I can give back. So I've been doing that for about 15 years, pro bono. And one day, he, and he'd been to my home many times. I, I knew all the people. I mean, we were very close. He said, hey, I have the first writings of Napoleon Hill. I photocopied them and put them in these books. Uh, would you be interested in annotating them? I'm like, "Shit, yes, I would. And it took two years for me to do it. I share the profits with the Napoleon Hill Foundation. And it was a work of joy, but it was a work. And finally, you know, 23 chapters later, all of these original lessons that he used to teach his classes were in advertising and sales, but he ended all the lessons with his philosophy of personal development and positive attitude. And so I edited out the sales part, and that may come about in a future, but it's more geared towards advertising. And I saved all of the gold that was to be his life's work and put it into book format, chapter by chapter, or lesson actually by lesson, and added a beginning that tells you how to, you know, what to expect in this chapter, added an ending to tell you what to do with it, how to put it into your life, and sparsely throughout the book, I would add my thoughts about something that might clarify it. I tried not to do that as much as I could, but I can tell you this, that the words that you read in Truthful Living are Napoleon Hill's original words. Those were unedited. I wouldn't dare.
0: And they're 100 years old. And I think when you put this in context, what's interesting to me is the fact that we live in this world of accelerating disruptive change. Yeah. And everybody thinks everything is different and they want to look forward. And the success in the future is going to look very much like what led to success in the past. And to look backwards, you actually can understand what success looks like in the future better than you can by looking into the future.
1: I always, at the beginning of every year, I have a very extensive library. It almost looks like yours. I have a library of old books. And I have often said, in order to get a new idea, you have to read something that's about 50 or 60 years old. Because somewhere, somewhere, along, somewhere along the line, somebody didn't do it. If you go back and look at your old speeches, you'll find stuff that you should be using. But when I first started to read Napoleon Hill and realize what his body of work was like, it was exciting to me. I wanted to read the next thing and the next thing. I own everything Napoleon Hill has ever written. I own autographed copies of every book. I have a phenomenal collection of Napoleon Hill that I think, secretly, the Napoleon Hill Foundation lusts after because they want my collection. I think
0: there's this idea called the Lindy effect that the longer something lasts, the longer it's going to last. And so you look at things like honesty and integrity and resourcefulness and all of the things that show up in Napoleon Hill's work about belief in yourself and confidence. And those things don't change very easily over time. They tend to just last and last and last. My first book was called The Only Sales Guide You'll Ever Need. And I gave it to the first publisher. And they hated the fact that I talked about mindset at all, which was the first half of the book. Mm -hmm. They hated uh, initiative. They hated resourcefulness and competitiveness and self-discipline. They didn't understand why that was in a sales book. And they asked, why don't you just write a book about prospecting? Fortunately, I gave it to our friends at Portfolio and they understood immediately what the book was. But why do you think that books like Truthful Living are so useful for sales people? I think in, in your work, in my work, in Hill's work that those of us who have written about sales, we end up having to write about success and those principles. Why do you think that that's true, that you have to put that content into what we're writing about when we talk about
1: sales? Think about yourself in high school and your attitude. And your teacher comes in, and the teacher's an amazing teacher delivering gold, but your attitude blows. You're going to get nothing out of that class other than go to the next class, kick the can down the road, get a D in the test, and wonder why she's such a shitty teacher.
0: You looked at my transcripts, didn't you?
1: Well, I tried not to, but (laughs) they were mailed to me. I think that you have to look at this from a standpoint of, if attitude is not the foundational element of what your learning is, of what your training is about, of what your education is about, you're not going to be able to accept anything that you get in wisdom. You're going to be cynical about it. You're going to downplay it. You're going to say, that'll never work. You're going to say, I tried it before and it didn't work. All the elements that make you a failure or lead you to mediocrity. So attitude is foundational and Napoleon Hill focuses on that and gives you ideas that you can put into play right away. You know, when you put those two things together, it's impossible not to look at this and go, this can change my life. I think the reason that I like to read the, the military books
0: so much and you know, military history is mm-hmm. specifically because that's where leadership becomes such the variable between success and failure. And you can see it because the stakes are so high. And I think in sales, the success attributes, the, the value of those intangibles are so high that it's almost impossible to talk about selling without talking about these right. principles that underlie it.
1: Right. If you don't believe... If your mindset is not, I believe I can do this, I believe I can help other people, I believe the customer is better off having purchased this from me, I believe I'm great, I believe my company's great, I believe my product's great, that belief system walks right into the sale. And that's your attitude, that's the attitude of belief that you have that allows you to be successful, not otherwise. Let me throw something at the audience right now to get the idea of the depth of this book. By lesson number 15, Napoleon Hill finally gets into what I would refer to as the meat and potatoes of a book that's full of meat and potatoes. This is the filet mignon. This is the center cut. He talks about imagination, desire, enthusiasm, self-confidence, and concentration. And these are the five keys to get somebody to the next one. The magic key is concentration, but the five keys that he has in here of imagination, desire, enthusiasm, self-confidence, and concentration, that has nothing to do with product knowledge. Right. That has nothing to do with close the sale. Objection, handling, nothing. Enthusiasm actually plays a part. Like You have to be enthusiastic about who you are and who you represent or what you represent in order to be able to make it, quote, transferable. The other person has to say, wow, I get this guy. I believe this guy. I think this guy can help. I'm willing to try it. You can do that without having to close the sale. I don't need to find the pain in order to be able to transfer my enthusiasm. In fact, quite the reverse is true. I'd rather find the pleasure.
0: (laughs) I have two lessons I want to talk about. Actually, I don't want to talk about them. I'm not going to say anything about them. I want to hear you talk about them and the value. I do want to give people a flavor for what's in the book. So I, I want to talk about number eight, which is the value of time. Because I think right now, if there's ever been a time where there are more distractions available to people just generally, and if there's ever been a device, I know that we, the television took a beating for being a, a <laughs> terrible destroyer, but if the television was terrible, then this phone that you carry around that beats yeah. and with every tweet, every text, every email, every Facebook, um, I mean, it is the, the small screen of infinite distractions. So talk about the value of time.
1: When I read this, it kind of made my blood run cold because I have been writing a book on time management. The title is, You Already Know What to Do, You're Just Not Doing It. (laughs) The Biggest Waste of Time to me is an all-day course in time management. People get it. And what Napoleon Hill did is he defined why time is so important. He defined that you can never have enough time in order to complete successfully that which you are seeking. And he's telling you to narrow it down. Get rid of the stuff that's a time waster. Get rid of the stuff that diverts you from your success. The whole underlying theme of of thinking, Grow Rich is have a, a definite major aim. Or
0: that's our next one. We got to get to that one next.
1: Oh, cool. But what he's doing here is saying, look, you have to have some kind of beginning. And the beginning is how you put your time to use. What are you doing that will allow yourself to be able to succeed? And keep in mind that in 1917, there was nothing to divert your time. It was a railroad train coming through town or the Pony Express was going to be there or something. (laughs) Now, we are so distracted in what happens in lives through smartphone. People will walk into a wall when they get out of an airplane to text somebody. And I mean, it's crazy what diverts us. So I have taken the words time management and thrown them away. And I have inserted instead time allocation. If you're going to be awake 18 hours a day, you have 36 half-hour slots. Fill them up and don't make TV one of them. And all of a sudden, your productivity will increase. And I just got one of my major time use ahas ever. I was fiddling around with word cookies and word bubbles on my phone because they were intellectually challenging. Make a word out of whatever the five letters are. It was eating me up. (laughs) <laughs> I finished the whole damn game. I was waiting for new lessons to appear. I'm emailing the people. Where's the next? When's the next? So I got challenged by my daughter and by Jen. They said, stop doing that. You're wasting your time. And I did. I haven't done it now. I haven't played the game for, I'm going to say, a month, maybe more. I won't play again. I am so much more focused by not playing the game because it's an easy diversion. You know, you're sitting around and you go, "Oh shit, I'll just, you know, I'll play one. No, read something. Do something that's more productive with your time. Ours is what Martin said, never underestimate the value of the use of spare minutes. I've got this
0: uh, planner that we sell that's got these 90-minute blocks that we give people. And I get all these notes back saying, I had two 90-minute blocks of uninterrupted time, and I felt like I did 16 hours of work. Well, you did. You did what you would normally have done over 16 hours. But because you had concentration and focus,
1: you used the time wisely. But Hill says that even when you go on vacation, you have to be thinking about what you're going to do and how you're going to succeed, not just idly, you know, drinking or partying or whatever, because some people come back from vacation and need a vacation. (laughs) The classic quote in the chapter is the brain never gets tired. Now, come on. That's so classic. Three little words that he says, you know, finish what you start. He puts words together that are phenomenal and they're unchallengeable. Uh, well, I'm, I'm real tired today. No, no, you're still thinking. <laughs> right. You're thinking I got to go to bed, I got to brush my teeth, I got to do whatever, and he'll hits it on the head. And what he's saying to you is stop wasting your time and start compacting your time into elements that will help you succeed. Period.
0: I gave up time management a long time ago. It's me management. Can you manage you? Because that's the obstacle. It's always you and what you give your time to. I've got one more question here. I got one more prompt rather for you. I want to go to number 10. It's having a chief aim in life. And what I notice about people is they don't have one and they drift. They just let whatever the world is going to throw at them, just sort of guide them wherever it's going to guide them without them having something that
1: they want. Well, if you ask someone what they want to do, they'll say, I want to become a millionaire. And what they don't give you is the game plan that will get you there. So Hill says, have the chief aim and then make the plan. That if you don't make the plan and you don't have the dedication, you don't have the desire, you don't have the concentration, you don't have the enthusiasm, just think about how accurate these words are and how well-placed they are and how succinct they are. Let me just throw this at you. I'm going to write a book called How to Become a Thousandaire," because- You need a thousand of those before you can become a millionaire. And everybody will tell you, you got to do this to become a millionaire. And people read and they go, I can't do that. But everybody can become a thousandaire because some people aren't. Some people couldn't write a check for 2,500 bucks. I want to be able to help somebody become a regular thousandaire. And if you do, then you can become a millionaire. That's a stepping stone. And maybe even a hundred thousandaire and then a millionaire. First, you'd have to put a little
0: money aside. Yeah, I've seen the stats that most people couldn't pay $600 right now if they they had an emergency. It's not a lot of money. When did you recognize your chief aim in life? And did Think and Grow Rich codify that for you or reveal that to you in some way?
1: Some things are without goals, Anthony. When I became a salesperson or when I became a salesman, I realized that I loved this. And my goal was to become the best salesperson in the world. When I realized that I love speaking, I go, wow, this is the most fun thing that I possibly can do. I want to be the best speaker in the world. When I began writing, I go, wow, this is like the coolest thing on the planet. (laughs) I want to be the best writer in the world. So I have speaking, writing, and selling as my three goals. And if you read the outliers, I have 10,000 hours in each. So I'm qualified to get to the next level, wherever that may be. And I focus on it every day. I wake up in the morning. Let me share with your audience the five things that I do in the morning, which will help them. I read, I write, I prepare. Those are the three main things that I do in the morning. And under that is a fraction. And underneath of that is it allows me to think and create. So I'm reading, writing, preparing. And that causes me to think and create. Preparation can't be underplayed. And you know it well, because when you give a speech, you got to prepare. I give a speech, I prepare, I give every, every speech I give is a customized speech. So I'm, I'm not one of those that tries to find a, a new audience. I want to stick with one customer for 10 years so that I can have a fair share of whatever they're trying to do with uh, education budget. And many I do have, but I think it's important to understand that when you're looking at your goal, it's not a goal. It's an intention. Right. Right. You're either going to intend to do something or not. I mock New Year's resolutions because they never come about. You make them when you're drunk. Yeah, I'm going to be a better person. To do it. They're all bullshit. I'd like to have just a quarter for every New Year's resolution that never gets done. Just give me a quarter. And I'll be a happy guy. You'd be the richest man on earth. Yeah, in Babylon. Richest man in Babylon. I think that a goal, a fairy tale, unless you have a definite love for what it is that you're doing and you've made a game plan.
0: I do the same thing. So writing for me, thinking, creating. Do you tend to do writing in the morning as soon as you get up? I tend to,
1: yeah, but I can do it anytime. I can do it on the airplane. I can, you know, but I seem to be fresher in the morning hour.
0: Me too. I think almost every writer that is as prolific as you are uh, that I've interviewed writes in the morning.
1: Yeah, Mm -hmm. and people say, well, I'm not a morning person. There's a reason you're not a morning person. You get fucked up at night. And then you can't yeah. get up in the morning. Then you're
0: not a morning person.
1: <laughs> like, dude, right. I know like, people
0: ask me all the time, how do you get up at 445? I'm like, I get up. I mean, right. no, how you're how sober I do it?
1: before. And then, so it makes it pretty easy.
0: And the truth of the matter is if you get up at 445 three or four days in a row, I promise you're going to bed at nine o'clock. Your body's gonna eventually tell you, no, you're going to sleep. You can convert. This book comes out on October 30th. Okay. So that's when people can get the book, but It is available for pre-order now on Amazon.com. Yeah. And there is a Kindle version. Yeah. And will there be an audio version?
1: Yeah. I will finish the audio recording next week. It will be edited probably the next two weeks, and it'll be out October 30th. Everything will come out at the same time. Amazon is publishing the book. Amazon knows more about the publishing industry and distribution of books than all other major publishers in the world combined. Where do you want me to point people here? Do you want to be point them to Amazon for the page. Go to Amazon and type in Truthful Living or Jeffrey Gittimer or Napoleon Hill, and it'll pop up. I would highly recommend that you get the book as fast as you possibly can so that your neighbors or your competitors don't have that slight advantage. I buy books. If I like the book, I'll buy it on Kindle and I'll buy the hard copy. It's cheap. I buy them on Kindle
0: Audio and hardcover, and I I don't know if people know this, but if you if you have your Kindle and you have the audio book, they stay in sync. So when you get in your car and you're going on a sales call, you turn it on, and you pick up right where you left off. When you get home, you can pick your Kindle back up if that's how you read. You're right where you left off.
1: All right, I'll give one tip for that. I blow the type up on my Kindle, not because I can't read. I don't. I literally I don't wear glasses for the most part. I don't need to see far or near. I can see everything. But when there's less words on a page, you can read them faster and comprehend better. So I have increased my reading speed at least by double, but I've increased my comprehension a thousand percent. So blow the type up.
0: Make big text. Listen, it's an honor and a privilege to have you here long-time fan, biggest fan of the first email you sent me that you'll ever have. <laughs> cool. uh, I'm going to find that so I can share it with you someday.
1: I'll, t- I'll look at my archives, I'm sure. I have.
0: <laughs> and thanks so much for your
1: work. Yeah, cool. It's a pleasure, Anthony. I am happy to be your friend.
0: That is the great, the one, the only Jeffrey Gittimer. You can find all of his books at Amazon.com. You can also find them in any Barnes & Noble. But right now, go to Amazon.com and pick up Napoleon Hill's Truthful Living. So you're going to search Napoleon Hill and add Jeffrey Gittimer's name so that you can pick up a book that has his annotations that make this practical and tactical and something you can put to use right away. You can find Gittimer at Gittimer.com. My name is Anthony Anorino, and you can find me at thesalesblog.com. You can also find me at anorino.com. Both of those addresses will take you to the same place where you will be accosted by a pop-up banner asking you to sign up for my Sunday newsletter, the best work I produce every week, bar none. It shows up in your inbox on Sunday morning with a big idea that's practical and tactical and actionable so you can hit the ground running on Monday morning. You can also find me at youtube.com forward slash anarino where you can see my everyday program where you'll find content just like the blog, something that you can think about, something you can put to work right away. If you find this podcast valuable, please subscribe. That helps me tremendously and share it with your peers and your friends and other people that work in sales or management or leadership or who are success-minded. Also, it would help me tremendously to spread the word if you would leave me a review. If you like this, give me your notes. Love to see those. We read every single one of them. If you're interested in more content, you can go to Amazon.com and search my last name, Anorino. You'll find three books: The Only Sales Guide You'll Ever Need, a sort of unfortunate title for a first book, followed by The Lost Art of Closing, Winning the 10. commitments that drive sales. And on October 16th this year, we will release the third book called Eat Their Lunch, Winning Customers Away from Your Competitors. That will be the third book in as many years. Thanks for joining me here. And until next time, I'll see you in the arena. What follows here is a true story. A few years ago, I was sitting in a sales conference waiting for my turn to speak. And as I was catching up on things, I noticed an advertisement on Facebook for HubSpot's inbound conference. And at the time, I was immediately struck by the idea that while inbound is important, outbound is even more important. It's the difference between passively waiting and and actively pursuing your goals and your dreams and the clients that you need to acquire. I walked out into the hall and I called my friend, Jeb Blunt, and I said, I have this idea. We're going to put on a conference called Outbound. And he said, that's the best idea you ever had. And I argued that it probably isn't the best idea I ever had, but it was a good idea. So we got Mike Weinberg and Mark Hunter on a phone call. And the four of us committed to establishing our own conference, naturally naming it Outbound. In 2017, With about 12 weeks to plan and pull off the event, we had 400 people show up to the first event in Atlanta. Last year in 2018, we had a little longer period of time to set up for the event. We had 600 people show up, a growth of 50%. So, why are people showing up in Atlanta to outbound? Because they want to know how to prospect more effectively, because they need to know how to build a pipeline now. And because they want to be more productive with the time and the energy they have to go out and win new clients and grow their sales and make more money and take care of their people. So I'm inviting you to join me and Jeb Blunt and Mark Hunter and Mike Weinberg at the World Congress Center's Georgia Ballroom in Atlanta, Georgia on April 23rd to April 26th. This will be the very best sales conference you've ever attended, and you're going to get the practical, tactical development you need to be able to prospect more effectively, build your pipeline, and be more productive. You're also going to believe that you're at a rock concert, and you're going to have the very best time you've ever had, and this is truly an event like no other. Tickets are on pre-sale now, so I want you to go to outbound.ticketspice.com forward slash outbound hyphen 2019 to get tickets for you and your team. There are pre-sale tickets. They're super cheap for two days. You have to go get them right now while they're still up. That's outbound.ticketspice.com forward slash outbound hyphen 2019. That's where you go to get tickets. And listen, do this right now because when April comes around, you don't want to see all of your friends at Outbound posting everything that they're learning and the great time that they're having on social media while you're sitting at home. Go do this right now and I'll see you in Atlanta in April 2019. This episode of In the Arena is sponsored by me, Anthony Annarino, and the Outcomes Planner. I want to take a minute and share some information about my new planner with you. We call it B2B Sales Toolkit, and you can find it at b2bsalestoolkit.com. This is a planner that I designed for salespeople, and it's based on my own personal productivity strategies. If you ever wonder how I get so much done, you're gonna find the answer at b 2 bsalestoolkitcom The planner is made up of three parts. So the main planner is a hardcover book and it's a place for you to capture your goals, your disciplines, your appointments and your sales statistics, and a bunch of other features. We call that big planner outcomes, because that's what productivity is. It's generating outcomes. And a lot of you listening to this may feel overwhelmed because you're busy, which is not the same thing as being productive. In fact, these two ideas are polar opposites. The second book you're going to find in the toolkit is called Outbound. And it's a place where you design and keep your pursuit plans for your dream clients those clients that are strategic enough, they're custom made for your value prop, and you're going to have to pursue them over a some long period of time to be able to pull them away from your competitor. This is the only planner you're going to find that addresses winning your dream clients and making your number. There's nothing else on the market. We looked at every single thing. It's not designed for salespeople, but this is. The last piece is a tear sheet tablet that we call 90-minute blocks. And this piece is designed for you to sit down and very thoughtfully and intentionally decide what you're going to do with three 90-minute blocks each day for your most important outcomes and to plan that work. So this means what we're going to help you do is give yourself four and a half hours in proactive mode and three and a half hours in reactive responsive mode where you can still deal with the demands of your company, the demands of your clients, and all the other things that are going to interrupt you while you're trying to do your work. So go to B2B Sales Toolkit right now to check it out and subscribe to the program. When you sign up, you're going to get access to a 16-video course where I walk you through the planner and how to use it to create the greatest success for you and for your people. And then you're going to get an invitation to join us in a private Facebook group so you can share your success and so we can come on and give you live coaching. Go check out the planner at b2bsalestoolkit.com. Increase your productivity and I'll see you inside once you're in the Facebook group.